everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester, and I'm throwing in this little bonus episode. It's actually a replay from episode number eight with Bart Decker. I'm doing it because of the release of the movie 12 Strong that's coming out uh, tomorrow on the 18th or 19th, whatever the date is. But uh, a friend of mine said, man, you should go back and, and promote that interview you did with Bart Decker, the horse soldier, for this movie coming up, because the movie looked great, and I said, man, that's a good idea. So thank you, Jay, for the suggestion. Uh, I don't know how the movie will be, but uh, it definitely is something I would be interested in. Uh, I don't know if, um, I know Bart is not exactly uh, depicted in the movie, and I'm not even sure if any Air Force guys will be. Uh, They seem to kind of be left out sometimes, but I don't know of any of them that are complaining about that. But anyway, with with the release of that movie, I wanted you to hear from Bart. I have gone back and kind of edited that original version because I heard my intro before and I sounded like I was like half dead or something. So uh, I hope this is a little better, the intro anyway, I can't go back and fix the actual interview, but if this is hopefully a little bit better without sounding, uh, you know, fake or something, I wanted to have a little bit more energy. Uh, it's a very interesting story though, how they inserted into Afghanistan shortly after 9-11 and they had to ride horses, many of them, because of the terrain and the, the width of the paths. And they slept in ditches and in caves, and it was just crazy. They, you know, the target was Mazari Sharif, and Teddy talks about John Walker Lynn, the capture of him, and then about uh, Mike Spann, who was a CIA agent, I guess, who, who was actually who was from Alabama, and he was killed the, the first, first death in Afghanistan. Um, so Bart was there for all that, so enjoy. Bart Decker, it's great to have you with me. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I have uh, wanted to speak with you for quite a while now, so thanks for responding to my, my message to you. No, that's not a problem. Uh, I, I, uh, I told the audience that you were one of the horse soldiers, and uh, will you, do you mind just explaining what that was and how you got you know pulled into that role and maybe what it consisted of? You can go as deep as you want. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, okay, so I guess the best way to do is uh, uh, go about it is go in chronological order. And uh, <clears throat> so when, obviously, uh, after 9-11, um, we, we, we all kind of knew uh, what was going to happen uh, from a military perspective. Uh, so um, I think immediately we began mobilizing. I mean, um, in, in our job and as a combat controller, I mean, our... our uh, our gear, our kit is always uh, always packed. Uh, usually, you know, each member usually has a cage at their unit, and uh, that's where all their gear is kept. And uh, it's usually always ready to go. So on uh, on the personal side, that that's never an issue. Um, but then you know all, all the uh, all the other equipment uh, that needs to be mobilized, uh, you know, to support uh, to support a unit uh, definitely needs to be uh, packed up. So, so that was done, obviously. Uh, uh, in the following weeks after uh, after 9/11, and uh, I, I, so, sometimes the dates uh, elude me, but we we were definitely in uh, we deployed to uh, Karshi Khanabad, what what's known as K2, um, in Uzbekistan in early October. And, uh, our primary mission once we got into there was to uh, equip the airfield with a, uh, what was called a uh, MMLS, a mobile microwave landing system. And uh, that was relatively new to our unit at that time, but we had uh, quite a few guys trained on it. And what that did was, uh, in uh, IFR condition, uh, which is below visual flight rules when the weather gets really bad, allows uh, airplanes to come on in and land. Um and like I said, mobile system, because uh, at K-2, it was old uh, Soviet era. Um, it was a Soviet, old Soviet airfield in the uh, air traffic control tower. Uh, you could tell was, uh, I mean, you couldn't tell when we were up there. It was old Soviet era radios from probably the uh, the 60s, the early 70s. And uh, the airfield had lighting, but that was that was really about it. We used our uh, MMLS uh, for precision precision approaches uh, when the weather got uh, below minimums. And uh, we just kept working C-17 after C-17 in there and uh, and, and built that place up uh, uh, pretty quick. And um, about the middle of October is when um, they started, or we started, 
uh, all the soft units started inserting into Afghanistan. And uh, so the ODAs were going in, Operational Detachment, Alpha, uh, is how uh, Special Forces are uh, described. And uh, we were uh, attaching our guys uh, with, with those units as, as they went in. And uh, so the, the first unit went in in the middle of October, uh, and then a couple other units would, would go in shortly after that. Myself, personally, and another controller went in with a team on uh, 2 November. And it just so happened, like the, the, the units that went in before us, they were not on horseback, but the, the guys that went in uh, in were going into the northern area. Our, our objective was uh, Mazari Sharif in Afghanistan. Why other guys were working in the Kabul area, other guys were working in the Bagram area. And it just so happened the guys working going to the Mazari Sharif area joined up with the Northern Alliance, and that happened to <laughs> entail riding horseback. So it was just kind of luck of the draw, if you will. And uh, our, our DO, our Director of Operations uh, for our unit, the, the 23rd Special Tactics Squadron, uh, was the one who was appointing which guys would go with what team. And uh, he was kind of the uh, the orchestrator of it all, the mastermind of it all. So I just kind of I drew that that slot with uh, you know with the horseback uh, mission. How big was your team? Yeah, I mean, so when we went in, our, our, yeah, our team was a uh, they, they our team was kind of made up of a it wasn't a, a direct ODA the team that I was on. They called it an ODC, Operational Detachment Control, and uh, they, they had that um, configuration back in Vietnam, and it hadn't been used since then. So my team comprised of a lieutenant colonel, a major, a sergeant major, uh, two, uh, two E7s and an E6, and then myself and uh, another controller. So there, there was eight of us on that team uh, when, when we went in. Okay, I didn't realize there was another controller there with you on that team. Yeah, that's correct. And then also in that same area of operation, there were, there were two other ODAs that were really on our flanks, and they each had controllers on those teams as well. And like I said, our and we would meet every now and then, every couple of days, uh, as we moved north to our objective, uh, Masri Sharif, and. We, we we inserted into a uh, into a valley. Uh, we went in by helicopter, and then from the helicopter, we were on horseback from that point on for about about ten days. Cause I think we finally got into Masri Sharif uh, or about November twelfth, right in that time frame. So, what was the learning curve like with uh, you know with the horses? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't uh it wasn't as glamorous as it looks, I can tell you that. Um it was not only on horseback, but there was a lot of donkeys. So what what we had was uh we had basically our our uh our day pack on and and then of course our weapon, ammunition, our vest with everything on it. So all that right there weighs about sixty, seventy pounds. And then our, our big rucks we had on donkeys, which they, the uh, Northern Alliance walked. So obviously we had all our, all our compsec and, and all our, uh, you know, high value items on our, on our person at all time. But like our, our clothes and, you know, some food, tents, you know, that those type of supplies were, uh, were all on donkey uh, because you just couldn't carry all that on, on horseback. That would get walked and, that would usually catch up with us uh, later that evening or the next day, depending on how long we stayed uh, stayed at one site. So the learning curve was, was very uh, very high because not only were you that heavy sitting on that horse, but the horses all had wooden saddles and they weren't very tight. So it was oh, you were always sliding around, and um, it, it just uh, it, it just wasn't very comfortable. It's not like riding in a vehicle. Uh, for sure, and we moved both day and night, depending on on which day we were moving. And the reason why horseback was was the ideal choice to move is because of the mountainous terrain we were moving through most of the time. 
and the ledges we were walking on were only probably about two to three feet wide. I mean, you couldn't even you couldn't ride a motorcycle or an ATV through there. It was it just was not permissible for a, a motorized vehicle. So, well, horseback was the way to go, and and well worked out. Uh, you know, for us. So, did the the people at was it called Masri Sharif? Did they did they know you were coming? Oh, I think they had a pretty good idea. Um, yeah, well, we were coming. Although, you know, the Taliban held that city. You know, until we got there, obviously the Taliban held all, all of Afghanistan uh, ruled. Uh, so, but you know, well, let me back up a little bit too. You, you had asked uh, too earlier in a question about living conditions, and no, it, it, it is so remote where we were all the way up into uh, in the Mazari Sharif. Uh, it was it was just mud hut villages that you would pass by. So our, our first few nights, we actually lived in caves in the side of this uh side of the mountain and for the first couple nights and uh we just slept in uh basically in, in ditches and then there there was a lot of old outposts from the Soviet, you know, the fight from the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets that were still there. So there, the place was still heavily mined all over. So that was another reason going with the Northern Alliance was was uh was the right thing to do because they knew that they knew the territory like the back of their hand. They knew where all the minefields were. So that kept us pretty safe in that respect um, as we moved, moved forward um, up, up, the, up to Masri Sharif. Um, and, I, and on our way, we, my, my, my group, we only encountered, we only encountered uh, a rocket fire on the last day, actually, prior to going into uh, Masri Sharif. And uh, another controller from uh, from the one of the other ODAs were uh, was working some uh, fighters while that was all going on as we were coming up to this OP observation point. And then um, I joined him in that respect and uh, and worked some uh, worked some fighters as well that evening. And then the next day is uh, like I said, I think it was about ten days total on horseback. Uh, we went into Masri Sharif at that time. And as we went into Masri Sharif, the people started lining the streets because, well, let me back up. That, that evening, we were on top of a mountain after, uh, after working a lot of fighters. And you could see all these cars leaving Masri Sharif uh, by headlights. And what had what happened to be was all the Taliban were exiting the city. So... Um, so actually, Masri Street became liberated that that day, that evening, and then the next day we went into town, and uh, the people were all lined the streets, clapping, cheering um, that uh, that the city was liberated at that time. Did you have any firefights or have to drop any ordnance before you got there? Yeah, just that just that day, and and like I said, keep in mind there was another controller uh, with one of the ODAs. Um, that's mentioned in the horse soldier book. Um, and, uh, he, he worked, a, he worked a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of cast missions, close air support missions as, as we moved up. And like I said, he was, they were on one flank and then we had another ODA on the other flank, uh, which I don't think that the controller with that other ODA worked, uh, worked any cast as, as we went up to Masri Sharif. Just, just one of them with, um, I think it was 595 was the ODA. Okay. I read an interview where you talked about the terrain, and um, but I mean, it sounds like y'all moved at night too. Was that a regular or just occasionally? Did you? Did you? Uh, move? We, it, it was both. It was a little of both. We moved uh, a couple nights, and then uh, we we moved by day as well. Then then we would sit at an OP uh, for. It, it, there was no set pattern. Um, it, it just uh, was all under circumstances on whether we moved that night or day, but we did uh, we did movements uh, both. So how did you, when your medic, is this when the medic broke his back? Was before you got there to? Yeah, that so that that uh, that, that that is that was not true. Uh, that was that's a fabricated story. I think he's been admonished for that, and uh, that that uh, definitely was not true. Glad you, glad you cleared that up. Yeah. So, so what happened once you got there, and the people were cheering for you, and they were liberated? I mean, what what did you do next? Well, we went to uh, 
uh, so our, the group uh, that, that we were with was uh, led by uh, the Northern Alliance group, was led by uh, General Dosum. So we went uh, to Kuala Jangi, the fort, and the um, that might have heard of uh, became famous uh, during that war of the uprising. And um, so we went to that fort, and we ended up staying there, and that was Dostum's old fort. And we ended up staying there for oh, about about two weeks. Um, as then we, so after uh, we were there for about two weeks, then we were bringing in uh, you know more people, more uh, more supplies, and then um, as we while we were there, um, the SF team, you know, more leadership came in from uh, from special forces, and we ended up setting up a. Uh, a, a, a tactical operations center, and uh, we ended up doing that at a uh, what used to be it was an old abandoned uh, all girls school. So uh, we moved from the fort to that schoolhouse, and uh, that's where we ended up. It was a hardened building. The fort was just a big, uh, you know, a big mud hut. But once we moved to the uh, the school, that was a, uh, a three story uh, hardened uh, building. The, uh, we ended up hiring a lot of the locals and uh, got a lot of stuff fixed there and got it all operational again. And then um, at that point, we uh, obviously transferred, transitioned over to vehicles. We had a couple uh, vehicles brought in, um, brand new vehicles brought in by helicopter. And then we, we bought a lot of vehicles off the uh, off the local economy there, uh, the old standard Toyota Hiluxes and stuff they uh they can see in all the pictures. So so then we started, uh, you know, uh, we're going to do our uh, daily operations, uh, which would be uh, running the airfield, you know, which is uh, one of our primary missions as a uh, as a controller. But, you know, after after we were in that school, I, I can give you the, the, the rundown story here of how the uh, how we got all the prisoners. So when we're when we're at the schoolhouse, those them. Um, was asked to go negotiate a, uh, a prisoner surrender over in a uh, over in another town, and uh, so at that point we were about ready to leave, and uh, it was myself and, a, and another group of guys, and then we we uh, obviously a lot of the people that came in downrange later after we got into Masri Sharif stayed back. As we were leaving the town. Down comes the road. Down the down the road comes a uh, about you know four to five hundred Taliban saying they wanted to surrender. So what happened was, Dosa let them through and they took them over to the to the fort that we were at. You know those prior two weeks before we moved to the schoolhouse. And uh, within that group was uh, Johnny Walker, Lynn. So we ended up leaving, going to Condos, and. That's when they had the prisoner uprising about two days later after we had left. And um, that's when um, some of the other government agency guys got killed, uh, or one of them got killed out there. And then um, they had the big uprising there, and we were in Condus. So how it all worked was the AC-130 gunships had just got into got into country right at that same time frame. And... Uh, so the gunships were used at the fort to uh, disclose the uprising. And uh, also, I worked the gunships at Condus, which uh, facilitated another huge surrender. Of uh, uh, We had probably over a 1,000 that were in Condus that surrendered. To tie us all together of recent events that just happened uh, here in the U.S. Uh, last year, one of those guys that where that thousand that surrendered was uh, Mohammed Fazil, which happened to be one of the five high-value target Taliban that got released from Gitmo in the prisoner exchange uh, for Bergdahl uh, exchange Hmm. last year. So, yeah, you can see how it all tied together. Yeah. I mean, what went through your head when you found out that? That we released him among amongst anyone, but specifically him for Bergdahl. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand. I, I just don't understand why why that would happen. I mean, this, this guy was a uh, he was a high ranking Taliban official. Uh, as a matter of fact, 
before, while we were there at Condu's on the side of the hill, he came up to the hillside, sat down with, with Dostum and a couple of other Northern Alliance generals, tried to facilitate uh, uh, some some type of negotiation. Then he, he went back with his people back down into Condu's, and the way it all worked out was, or as found out later in hindsight, was the HE-130s did not come on station that night. They were going to attack us and probably would have overrun us because we were definitely outnumbered. But it just so happened, luckily, the HE-130s were on station, and uh, we, we, we utilized, you know, those aircraft. And after that, that facilitated their surrender the next day. So uh, so it just happened to work out. But, yeah, like I said, he, he, was, he was a very, very high-ranking official, and I, I just don't understand the... Uh, the trade because the other four guys with them, they, they wouldn't have been in Gitmo uh, if, if they weren't because what happened was all those guys that, that surrendered ended up going to uh, another uh, another town and then they were they were all uh, vetted and interrogated right by uh, by our personnel of the government agency personnel and we took the hardened ones you know the high value targets and they ended up going to Gitmo because they. They had the most. They could do the most damage, right? As, mm-hmm. as the leaders and uh, of uh, you know of the Taliban in this case at, th- at that time, and uh, so there was a reason why they were in Gitmo, and there was a reason why they should stay there. And uh, uh, like I said, um, very very discouraging. And uh, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're back in the fight right now. Yeah, um, no question about it. And, and you said uh, in in with that that group that surrendered was uh, Johnny Walker Lind. When did y'all find out there was an American in that group? Yeah, I think. Um, well, while we were over at Condus, there was a couple other other government agency guys at the compound or at the Qualachangi at the fort uh, interrogating the guys, and that's that's how they ran across him. He was in that group of that four to five six hundred guys that initially came down the road as we were leaving town. And uh, so he ended up uh, being kept over with us at the uh, at the op center at that school. When we returned from Condus, he was there already. And uh, so he was with us for a few days, and then we, we put him on a 130, and uh, he, he ended up obviously coming back to the States. So yeah. we got him out of there. Well, you may not want to answer this, but I'm just curious. What are you thinking? You know, how do you control yourself, maybe, or control your rage when you see an American that's over there that that's you know turned against us? Yeah, I I, uh, I personally just stayed away from him. Um, you know, I, I let the uh, the SF team guys uh, handle him, so um, I didn't really. Uh, obviously, it, uh, <laughs> it it curdles your blood. But, uh, you know, I just went about my business. We had an airfield to run in other operations. So uh, so I, I let SF do, or I didn't let, but SF did their job and, uh, and handled him. And uh, the only time I saw him again really was when we put him on the, uh, on the 130 because we were working the airfield there and, and got him out of there. Well, it sounds like uh, there was, you know, large numbers surrendering very early on in the war is that right and and i guess really what what uh caused it yeah yeah absolutely i mean um if if you look back at it 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 was set up uh you know the secretary rumsfeld and and uh, all the commanders and and obviously i'm gonna give a uh you know uh give kudos to uh another book um it was called uh, First There by Gary Sharon. He was with the uh, with the CIA, and they're, they're the ones who, you know, really set it all up at the beginning uh, because, you know, 9-11 happened, and then you, you got to react quick, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it was really set up brilliantly, if you think about it. I mean, we, we were just executioners. I mean, not executioners. We, we executed the plan um, that, that that was set up. Um but but the plan was was brilliant that our, that our leadership set up at that time. Yeah, I think I think I think Afghanistan was liberated like in 49 days, if I'm not mistaken. 
uh, on the, on the upper. And, uh, so yeah, you would have, you would have large droves of people surrendering or fleeing, you know, Taliban, uh, in, in that short amount of time. And that's, that's exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that when there was the uprising, was that when Johnny Michael Spann was killed also? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Okay. He's actually from about 20 minutes from my hometown. And I think okay. he was he the first American killed. Is, is that right? Uh, I do. Yeah, I do believe so. That's, okay, that's correct. And uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, because I sat next to him in a van, and uh, we were there in November, so we were there on Veterans Day, and uh, we were already up in Masri Sharif. Most of them had us all over to a house where he was at, and gave us you know a veterans. You know, he was a Marine veteran. Uh, and, you know, had a, a celebration, if you will, you know, for us uh, as uh, as veterans uh, on that day. So um, I got to meet him for, uh, you know, a brief a brief period. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, uh, obviously a, a great tragic loss, just like just like all the lives have been uh, since then. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sad. I've seen his, his daughter on, on the news before, and she was very... Very well spoken and just very well put together. I think she was, you know, she was in college and you know she's seemed to have done well for herself. She's probably out of college now. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's it terrible. What what else about? <laughs> I was just so interested in this this whole deployment of yours. How long were you in country? So really, you know, this was a great thing about being in special operations. Uh, we were only there for. From beginning to end, on my first deployment there, I was only there for four months. So we we ended up uh, pretty much all the excitement that I, that I told you was that was over, and you know we we just worked the uh, the airfield there for oh I don't know probably the next two months because I remember I think I went home home I think we, I think we left Afghanistan around the 13th or 14th of January and uh, me personally and went back to K2. And then I think uh, me and some other guys left K2. We, we were just going out in, you know, twos, threes, fours. You know, we weren't leaving as a unit because we were getting backfilled too by, uh, by other, other, you know, guys from other units. And um, I think I want to say we left around January – 18th, 20th time frame where I went home and then, uh, then went back on another deployment in May from May to September, another four month deployment. Because at that time, then they started setting up rotations between our, uh, uh the squadrons. So had you had many deployments prior to this one in, in 2001? <laughs> well, real world, you mean? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Or, I guess I guess I, mean, just the, I guess yeah, you've I mean, gone all over. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I traveled all over the place for twenty years. You know. Okay. Um, I, I would say uh, the only other, I mean, real world. You know, back in the uh, you might be too young to remember, but back in the uh, in the eighties, we had a uh, Sandinista Contra uh, war was going on down in Central America. So I deployed down there for a month to support that. You know, it didn't. It, it, no action or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it was uh, a real-world deployment, if you will. And then uh, just as my career went, um, I uh, was kind of always in the wrong place at the wrong time as far as uh, when the real-world stuff came up because uh, I was on the uh, I was on the Pope team for uh, for five years from um, from 80, uh, 84 to eighty nine and. Other than what I just told you about uh, Central Central America, really nothing really was happening. So I went, became a combat control school instructor in '89, and uh, about six months after that is when the uh, Panama invasion happened, and the, the two one STS at the time was the team that went, and then um, and then Desert Storm kicked off, and I was still an instructor, so I didn't go on that, which. I guess I, I didn't miss anything really on that, from what I understand. Uh, and then, um, then I went up to uh, Alaska for four years, and uh, nothing really there, just training. And then, 
came down to Hurlburt in 96 at the 2-3 STS, and, uh, and then obviously I was there through uh, 9-11 and retired in 03. So obviously that was my, my biggest deployment. But, you know, we, we went on a, you know, we did a lot of stuff, uh, you know, throughout the years, um, whether, you know, not obviously not combat engagements or anything, but uh, obviously 9-11 was, uh, you know, the biggest deployment of my life and uh, one you'll never forget. So I'm sure. Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out is I didn't I didn't realize how long you'd been in. So I didn't I didn't know you were. Yeah, you were in in the 80s and and part of Desert Storm. Desert Storm is really when I was um, I was a teenager. And that's when I really was paying attention a little more to what was going on. And and I had just, you know, tons of American pride about it with, you know, with, George, uh, with Norman Schwarzkopf. And, you know, I just. Yeah, Storm and Norman. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just we were just kicking butt over there, or at least you know I thought we were, and you thought we were. I thought we yeah. were unstoppable at that time. Well, you know, and that's when um, that's when the the, the U.S. Uh, perception of the military, as I saw, it, changed uh, to to all all positive. Um, you know, when you look back, and you know, I came in in the '80s, so I had a lot of Vietnam guys that really I learned from, you know, and I was under, they were senior NCOs and I, I was the, uh, you know, the young guy. So they, they were my mentors, you know, at that time. And, you know, and they, and they talked, uh, you know, they always talked about their, you know, you listen to their stories and, and hear their talk and, you know, and then just, just traveling around the country back in the eighties, you know, and, and how you were treated at, you know, the military and, and, and stuff. But then after desert storm, uh, I could I, I could see the perception in the feel of uh, of the U.S. really really back in the military, uh, and uh, and the perception I, I think changed at that point for, for the good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I've never had anybody compare them for, from the from the '80s and prior to uh, Desert Storm, but it, it definitely makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, while you were deployed there in Afghanistan, is that I think y'all had something called the Angel of Death. You, you want to elaborate what that is, what that was? Yeah, if you, if you go back uh, when I when I was t- telling you working on some AC-130 gunships in, in Kanduz, um, I, I had three three gunships, and they were they one would come on station, one would leave, another one would come on station, and they would leave, and uh, one of them that came on station. Uh, had the female on the radio, and um, it, it was, where we were uh, up on a ridge line. You know, it, it's it's dark and it's quiet, and uh, and so Dostum, uh, General Dostum, was standing, you know, behind me, and he could hear her voice through the headset, the handset rather, uh, of the radio. When as I was talking uh, to the airplane, actually, I was talking to her. And, uh, he, uh, I don't know. I don't think he coined it, but, um, you, you know how the Taliban looked down on the women. So he made it a point to put the broadcast on the radio, you know, that, that a female was up in this plane, um, you know, kind of dealing death on you. But, uh, I, I think it was the, uh, the, uh, our media that, that took that and ran as the angel of death. Okay. So that, that's how that all became, came about. <laughs> That's cool. When you deployed, y'all took a piece of the World Trade Center with you, and then I think before you yeah, left, the, uh, you, you buried the it SF, there. Right. Yeah, the SF team uh, did, and um, yeah, and and I knew uh, one of our guys had it in his rock and uh, carried it through, and then um, right in Masri Sharif, uh, we did a little ceremony there and uh, and, and buried it there. So yeah, it was uh, you know kind of kind of moving, obviously. Yeah. So, well, you know, innocent people losing their lives like that. Did your family know where you were, or did they find out much later after you got there, or what was the situation back home? <laughs> well, I mean, they they knew we were, they knew we were going into Afghanistan. I mean, everybody knew that, right? When you when the, when we deployed, mm-hmm. you know, I probably went for oh, I don't know probably two months without talking, month, month, month and a half, 
And then um, once once we set up the operations center um, in Masri Sharif, we uh, we had we had a really good internet connection down there. Actually, uh, to be honest with you, you know we had portable satellites set up, and uh, we were able to talk back and forth at that time. And then um, also uh, we could use the phones and do uh, do a morale call every now and then. But I usually just uh, you know you, you just have to type generically. But you know, send emails. You know, all all's good, and uh, and this and that, and just gotta had to watch your uh, you know your opsec. Yeah. At, at that time, your operational security, and uh, but uh, at that time, you know, we were we were communicating freely, emailing every day. Uh, at that point. Okay. Wow. I mean, 2001. I, I think the first time I ever used email, I know it was, it was 1998. I guess I just didn't realize. It's kind of hard for me to believe that there was such good internet over there in 01, late 01. Uh, yeah, they we we had some great com guys that set up some really good stuff, and uh, it was really good actually. Before we move on to maybe to the to the monument, what is there anything else you'd like to share about about your deployment or anything or elaborate on anything we've been talking about? No, you know everybody uh, everybody says thank you, thank you, you know, and I, I can just tell you it was uh, <laughs> there, there's. No, no thanks needs to be given. I mean, it was, uh, that's, that's what we trained for. And I, I was glad I was there at that time and able to go in and do what we did. And, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. Uh, I'd like to, the way that, the way that the dominoes fell, you know, to that point, I, I would, I would live it all over again the same way. So. Did you feel that the uh, rules of engagement did they negatively fi- affect you or your team at that point when you were there? Um, to a certain point, I, I, I probably won't get into them because uh, probably some of the stuff still classified. But um, but yeah, to a certain point it did, and um, I wish we would have had um, uh, some A tens and AC one thirties in in theater a little bit earlier, but. Um, I, I know um, that the perceived threat was the reason why they they weren't in earlier when you know when we were moving. But um, the ROEs on, on using the fighters uh, inhibited us a little bit. But um, like I said, I won't, I won't get in any deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, yeah, that's interesting because I've obviously I, I I'm I don't know much about it, but I have you know I've felt that, or I think the rules of engagement have gotten tighter and tighter, and you know I think they've in my opinion, they've definitely hurt our guys, and, and I'm sure they're much tighter now than they were when you were there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Other than you know our, our ROEs on the ground, um, yeah, it, it was pretty much the wild wild west, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, working. But then when when the aircraft came overhead, you know they had their ROEs on, on what they could do and and how they could do it, which you know. Kind of inhibited us a little bit, like I said, uh, hindered a little bit, uh, but we worked through it, and and that was all good. But yeah, the, the guys that are there today uh, pretty much have their hands tied, um, from what from what I understand, what I hear, and and, uh, and you know, and the talk around because you know I still I still stay in the community a little bit, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's definitely not good. Um, so I mean, you know, we're. We're, we're, I just heard a general do a quote, and I won't do him justice because I don't remember how it goes, but, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're good at, uh, short wars and we're terrible at long wars, and this is a long war, and we're sitting over there, and, uh, and, yeah, the ROEs get placed on you, and we're, we're not good. The military is not, is not a nation builder, and, uh, that, that's pretty much, uh, what we're over there trying to do right now, and, and that's just not what the military was made to do. You know, the military is made to, to destroy things and, and, and win. So that, that's that's my opinion. Good point. So when you, at some point later, there is a, a an artist that created a, a monument dedicated to the horse soldiers. And uh, now, first of all, there is a what I call an iconic image of you. Well, several guys on your team, I guess, Bart, but I think you are kind of the, kind of the focal point in the picture of you on a horse and, and um, and so there's a monument now in New York City that's dedicated to the horse soldiers, or, or at least uh, depiction to, to represent y'all. Do you, you mind telling us what that's about? Yeah, I, I think um, 
It, it was, as a matter of fact, that's uh, funny. Uh, ironically, I just got an email from uh, from that uh, retired sergeant major. Now the sergeant major is telling me that was in our team, saying that they're uh, they're doing the final dedication. On, so they they did a dedication on that. Um, I think it was three years ago, four years ago. I went up there and um, uh, it was on Veterans Day. They put it in a uh, in a temporary location, and it was a caddy corner across the street from the uh, One World Trade Center. Now, now it's going to its final place, and I don't have the exact address uh, of it, but um, but yeah, it was uh, it was made to um, uh, it was all private donors that um, that I guess had this made, and and uh, uh, gentleman's name whose name eludes me now, um, the, the sculptor. <coughs> Uh, ended up uh, uh, getting it done in record time, and uh, they had it up there uh, for for that ceremony. And we went up there, and uh, Vice President Biden spoke uh, spoke at a dedication. And uh, you know, I guess they wanted to, um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of uh, interlaced with, you know, um, with the first responders out there in, in New York City, and uh, and it sits. Um, you know, overlooking the uh, One World Trade Center, I, I do believe the final resting place is still going to be right in that area where it's where it's right by there. Uh, so you know, it, it's kind of an extension of uh, you know our follow-on. I, I think symbolic, if you will, our follow-on in the actions that we took after uh, you know the attack on on our soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so you know that that really you know sums it up, if you will. Yeah, it's a it's an impressive looking statue or monument, you know, whatever you call it. It's pretty tall. I don't remember. Yeah, it, it's big. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to see that. So I'll, if, you know, whenever I get to New York again, which, which my wife is dying for me to take her, that's one stop we have to make. I, I think that's, that it seems like the artist, maybe he, he had a French name and he, he, he created it in uh, Kentucky or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was in Kentucky because uh, we went to uh, his studio there. He did a lot of work at another place, and then brought it there to the to the studio to finish it. Okay. Well, do you ever do you ever look back and and just think, man, you know that was that was crazy. It was crazy times, or you know, how did I get through it? Or anything oh, like absolutely. That? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. You look back and you're like, man, you know, of all, all the. All the technology, you know, even even in one, we we had we had a lot of the technology in in, in the soft field, and uh, and and then next thing you know, you know, you're, you're jumping back, and uh, you know, in the game is Kong days, you know, and you're you're jumping on horseback. Of course, you got a, you know, you got a sixty thousand dollar radio on your back, you know, that that's your lifeline, you know, because that that's what we, you know, we use to, you know, communicate with, and uh, but yeah, it, no it. It's crazy. Well, every time I look back on that thing, it's crazy. Did you but ever have to engage the enemy with your gun while sitting on a horse? No, I never fired my weapon. Okay. <laughs> I didn't fire my weapon the whole excuse me the whole time I was there. Okay. Well, how did you adjust to life after deployment, and then, or maybe more specifically after retirement? I'm not sure sure which was tougher, but <laughs> uh, you know, adjustment. <clears throat> I, well, I, I knew it was time. Uh, well, I, I put it put it like this. I, I did it more. Uh, I, I retired more on the family side of it. Um, I mean, I could have probably stayed at Hurlburt a couple more years, but uh, you know, I was in E7, and uh, if I was going to stay in, uh, I definitely would. You know, would have stayed in to make you know E9 chief, uh, which is uh, obviously the highest rank in in the Air Force, uh, enlisted, and. Uh, but I always promised myself once my uh, my two daughters uh, got into high school that I, that I wouldn't move them, uh, you know. And uh, they just happened to be in high school, you know, in uh, in 2003. Um, actually, one was a sophomore, and actually, one was in eighth grade. She wasn't even in uh, high school yet. So, uh, so I said, well, I go now is probably uh, as good as time as any. Uh, I'm at my 20 year mark. I go, I'm not going to go any higher. Um, so I just decided to, uh, you know, to call it quits at that time after 20. And, uh, so it was actually 20, a few months and, uh, and got out and, uh, you know, the, the, the adjustment, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't difficult, uh, for me. Um, I, I missed the mission. I missed, I missed the guys. 
I don't miss a lot of the, the military, uh, I don't know, the military drill, if you will, you know, the, the requirements uh, in the military. But I, I definitely miss my unit, <laughs> excuse me, and the personnel in the mission. So, Yeah, I guess it's that brotherhood that you miss. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So if you if you had to, or if you could do it over again, would you? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I had a, uh, I had a great career. I haven't, even in, uh, you know, everybody jokes about, uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, you know, as, uh, Vietnam, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> terrible, terrible place to be stationed. You know, I was, uh, I was stationed there for eight and a half years, you know, and, uh, I, I had a great time. You know, it was because of the, you know, the team, you know, the people on the team and who you were with, you know, it, it was just a, uh, it was just a great time, you know. Did four years up in Alaska, great time, and uh, you know, did my last seven and a half at Hurlburt, uh down in you know Panhandle, Florida, great time, you know. It's uh, <clears throat> absolutely do it all over again, same way, no doubt about it. Cool. What what advice would you give to guys now that are considering the CCT field? Oh, I, I would definitely uh, in, encourage them. You know, uh, it's not an easy ride. And, uh, you know, if I could, uh, I quote one of my, one of my buddies, a recent retiree, Bruce Dixon, you know, it's, it's even after you're in, you got, you got to prove yourself every day. I mean, uh, there's, there's no, there's no free ride. And, uh, and what, once you're in, I mean, you, you, you have to, uh, you stay, you have to stay on top of your game. I mean, that, that's the reason why, uh, why soft is so successful. Um, our, our soft units are so successful is because we, we continually train and train and train. And, uh, you know, when we were in Afghanistan and, and dropping bombs and ordnance, it was, was just like we were on a, uh, a training mission here back in the States. You know, it was, you know, we were, we were doing everything with that we would do there. And we were just doing it. It happened to be doing it on a, on a real battlefield. And, uh, and, you know, there's no substitute for, for training. And, uh, and that that's why we were uh, so successful. You know, everybody was was on top of their game and stayed on top of their game and and, and that's what you have to do uh when you're in that career field. Now, yeah, well said. Well, I mean, in my opinion, you definitely are somebody who paved the way and uh I know there's a lot of guys before you, but I, I think it's just <clears throat> what you did was um obviously so critical for the war on terror and I've just really been looking forward to talking with you and to hearing you share some about it. Uh, you seem to kind of, uh, you know, be kind of a private person. That's my, my impression of you anyway. And, you know, just a quiet professional. And so thanks for, you know, sharing a few, a few circumstances with us today and a few feelings with us. And yeah. That, but, yeah. That's not a problem. Yeah. I, uh, I, I try and stay humble. That's for sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. You are. Is, is there anything in closing that you, you'd like to say? Uh, geez, no, I see. That, that, I guess that's why I'm a quiet. No, I'm not. I'm, actually, if you're around me, uh, you know, <laughs> with a few beers, you, 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 I'm probably one of the loudest guys there, but uh, <laughs> not, not spouting off by by any means. Uh, but uh, no, you know, I, I uh, like I said, um, I, I think I, I pretty much uh, capped everything, and uh, I, I enjoyed my my 20 years there, and uh, I would uh, I would do it all over again. So. I think uh, I think that that marks uh, success when you say you, you would do it all over again in, in the same way. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I guess I had a successful career. Well, you are exactly what this podcast is about. You are a patriot to the core, and I, I really thank you. And and I know there is a book called Horse Soldiers that that documents this particular deployment. Uh, is there any, any other uh, any other uh, literature out there that you know people could read to learn about it uh, i would just say uh, i think first there uh, by gary sharon okay um is a yeah uh, is a is a great book and uh that's really uh if you want to go in chronological order i would read uh, if anybody's interested in reading the books i would read that one first and it, and it sets up everything for what happened uh uh next it was really it, the title says it all. I mean, they they were in there first and uh, got everything organized with the uh, the Northern Alliance and uh, the other warlords, if you will, at at that time, uh, uh, shortly after nine eleven. 
Great. Well, I'll put those in the show notes so people can. Uh, I'll have a link there where they can go. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. Them. Look, look the book up and make sure I make sure I have that that correct. If, if you Google it, I'm pretty sure uh, if I have if I have one of the words wrong or something in the book, it it'll come up correct. Sure, I sure will. Well, thank you very much. I I really appreciate you, Bard, and I'll. Uh, I, I don't think we've met, uh, but I hope we do. Maybe at a at a a reunion or or something. So. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. I'd, I'd love to shake your hand and uh, and my deep, deeper sympathies uh, to you and your family uh, for uh, for your loss and and our loss and in, in, in our community um, with, with your brother. But uh, you know, I, I want to say something. You know, I, I looked. Um, you know, my, my wife read read that book first, and uh, and then uh, and then I downloaded it. Uh, you know, I just see your brother with that uh, with that Alabama hat on, and I, you know, he, he, he something just grabbed me. You know, I saw that picture first when my wife was uh, reading the book, and I go, man, I go, I go, I go, there's a stud right there, you know, and then uh, so that kind of made me read the book, and uh, and sure enough, it, it, your brother was, and uh, everything that goes with it. So, so the the, the picture uh, just just reveals a lot of things, and. Uh, and that one with his kid on and that Alabama hat on uh, was uh, was definitely one that, that, that caught my eye and uh, and piqued my interest for sure. Well, good. That's good to hear. I, you know, that was a a source of a small debate of what image to use, and but no doubt that was the right one. So I'm glad to see to hear from somebody like you that it, it affected positively. I think I still think and I've said this before in another interview with my publisher that I think that cover is one reason why Costco will not put the book in their store. That's a, that's a personal opinion. They haven't said it, but I think that they think really? oh, it's too, it's too strong. You know, I'll always believe that unless they, uh, well, I'll always believe it until they put the book in the store, <laughs> which, which, yeah, still yeah I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Uh, yes, my brother was a stud, but you are too. And, and so I'm really grateful for your service and for your, your, um, uh, willingness to fight the enemy and to, to do so much there in the early days in the war on terror. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, hopefully, uh, I'll see you down, uh, down in one of the reunions one day and, uh, and shake your hand and, uh, and talk with you. Great. Sounds good.